out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the artist, singer, performer, songwriter. It's the one and only Greg Jarvis, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Member of the Flowers of Hell, who've got a new album that has just come out this year, which is May 2023. This is titled... Kashaktaran, probably pronounced better elsewhere, but also has a, a reissue of another album that came out um, earlier this year called Oldies, which is another classic. So do check out their website. I'll give you the link in the notes below. Um, and also has just played a live date in the um, London 100 Club, but that's been and gone. So just let it go. Anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interest, but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that really... What is happening for Greg at the moment? Greg, tell us what's happening with you right now. Yeah. And so what it was was last fall, Space Age recorded in touch with us and asked us if we had anything we wanted them to release. And I said we'd been thinking about reissuing our covers album from 10 years ago that Lou Reed had been into. And uh, they were, yes, we'll do it. And we'll do it for Record Store Day Deluxe. I'm like, great. That's uh but then, of course, I had to ask Sonic Boom, you know, Pete Kember, okay, so where are things at with the Jason Pierce, Pete Kember legal challenge against Space Age? And that's moved into a better place. The issues still aren't resolved, but it's in a better place than it was before. And so I had his blessing to go ahead, even though there's still some contentions around there. Yes. So how do those two fit into this project? Um the uh well so the odes album it's uh again it's from 10 years ago and it's just they wanted to reissue it so it came out for record store day and the new album that we had ready we just decided okay well if we're going to be doing all the work of raising our profile and doing some shows and getting a publicist in and all that then it makes sense to put out the new album at the same time and i didn't know we were ever going to do another album but it was just during lockdown i just worked on this and then, you know, originally, you know, the album's called Kashaktran and it's one song called Kashaktran. I was just going to call the band Kashaktran as well. But uh, last summer I had some bandmates around to listen to the final mix of it. And one of them were like, Greg, it's a new Flowers of Hell album. I'm like, okay, well, if you feel it's good enough to be that, then yeah, I feel it is too. So it became the newest Flowers of Hell record. It's yes. all the Flowers of Hell playing on it anyhow, plus a few guests like Angel Corpus Christi and uh, Rishi Deer. And then this Montreal harpist, Sarah Page, who I completely love her work. Yes, absolutely. So when did you start? Um, I mean, because I've, I've been listening to to the album. So there's like two sides, aren't there? 20 minutes long. So when did this kind of start to develop? And when did you start getting the idea to create such a interesting um, sort of sonic piece? Well, it was never intentional. What it was, was before the pandemic, a girl I was dating uh, was sober. And so we we're trying to find things to do that are sober. And so one thing, she being sober, she was quite into meditating at night and so we experimented with me playing space guitar while she'd meditate while i was playing and i was able to watch which things would resonate with her she was a synesthete and so you know sounds would truly resonate through her and so i really got to see what things i was doing that would resonate through and i'd come up with a lot of different things 
And then, you know, after doing that for about a month, I put it all together as one track. And then I kind of just sent that to her and filed the track away until the pandemic hit. And then, you know, like most artists during the pandemic, with nothing coming in, nothing was coming out. Yes. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got that piece I did last year that's a nice 42-minute piece that I actually quite want to listen to to sleep while I'm all anxious about am I going to die or are my parents going to die? You know, in March 2021, it was all a new thing. And so I dusted it off. I'm like, oh, yeah, shit, this is actually quite good. And so then I added some more and sent it around to bandmates and friends who were similarly caged up. And they added their layers to it. And, you know, I edited it all, sculpted it all. And over about a year and a half of Toronto was locked down for 13 out of 18 months. So I had a lot of time to focus <laughs> on it. And, you know, that was the thing why I never thought I'd do a record again. My symphony was six years of isolation. So I just didn't want to be isolated working on a record. But when I was forced into isolation, I was like, all right, well, I know what I can do while I'm isolated. Yes. And, uh, that's really how it came together. So what you just mentioned you were six years isolated. What what does that mean? Well, with that, I mean, not all six years of the symphony were isolated. More the last 14 months of it, where I just didn't have much of a social life at all. I'd, I'd just, it'd just be work in the symphony and my soprano coming around once a week. And then, you know, maybe at the end of the night, I'd pop out to a gig or whatever and see a few people. But, you know, really no life for the last 14 months of working on the symphony of really you know, finalizing it. Yes. So when you're starting to put that together, do you have an end goal or is it just you're just exploring all the time? Every day is kind of just another exploring. And I mean, obviously, the end goal is always just complete synesthetic liftoffs so that I've created something that when I put it on. I'll just be blown away by a pyrotechnic show of everything happening and transported off. Yes. And so some of it often involves going too far and then reversing on back. Yes. And how do you manage to sort of have any kind of awareness of what's going on without sort of ending up in a sort of apocalypse now kind of moment down the river, just going slightly <laughs> mad, kind of mad and someone saying, look, you're going to have to just finish this project because... I honestly think it's it's one of the things the synesthesia helps with. You just feel it when it's right. And then when you go too far, you feel it's too far. And you know to dial it on back to the previous version of it. But then it also helps having so many bandmates that I've worked with for years and being able to send it to them for feedback or have them come around to mine and give it a listen and give me some feedback. Yes. Because uh, you said this was kind of part of a relationship, you know, that you were recording and she was sober. Were you sober as well? Or were you? Yes, I was absolutely sober when coming up with all of it. And then it went from being the most sober music I'd ever made to the fucking druggiest music I'd ever made. It's, uh, you know, during the pandemic, especially in Canada, because weeds become legal, everyone in Canada during the pandemic started moving over to mushrooms, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, it was even on Netflix, the most trending video was uh, was a movie about acid. Right? You know, it was Ben Stiller and all these people talking about their experiences taking acid. Number one on Netflix Canada, like psychedelics truly went mainstream when Canada was locked down. And uh, so for me, one of the players in my band who has a key role on uh, um, she her day job is as a registered massage therapist. And so I'd 
you know, I intended to microdose the first time we were trying it, where I was to have a massage on mushrooms, listening to the playback of the current mix of the piece. Yes. But I got my numbers wrong and I accidentally over microdosed. <laughs> and so I, I showed up completely tripping balls. But, you know, being in my band, it was no issue for her. And it was just a complete un otherworldly experience to hear that music and to have the massage and she'd massage me to the bits that were her instrument and so it was just and then with the with my, my seeing sounds as well with my synesthesia so it was just sound vision touch everything and it made and she's been getting ready for when psychedelics become legal in canada for medical treatments such as massage yes. which isn't too far away now that cannabis is legalized everyone's now looking at psychedelic therapy as the next thing and masseuses you know as she really caught in on with this yeah a massage on mushrooms it's like nothing else and these sensations of touch and sound it's a hugely unexplored crossover art form that's really not been explored much at all yeah so did you have your kind of chakras balanced at this stage were you you know were they was she kind of working through your is it meridian lines and sort of all these kind of bits and pieces of um energy I think forces much more of a manual trained masseuse than a, a kind of psychedelic here are the chakras and these frequencies will open these chakras up kind of one and so she was really just I, and i had a buggered shoulder because our last show had been in london just before the lockdowns and I, I, we do this one piece where I conduct the band and I, I windmill the band to crescendo as I conduct them, but they just weren't loud enough, strong enough. So I had to keep windmilling and speed up beyond my fastest windmill. And yes. so in the months following, my shoulder was just screwed. So she was doing proper manual massage therapy to get my yes. shoulder back in action as well as working the rest of them a bit more of a deep tissue massage so massage well so when you were listening to this and you were slightly tripping did you sort of experience different quite a lot of different emotions and different colors were you able to sort of be guided through this kind of experience oh definitely definitely i mean my mind went all kinds of places really really just traveled uh, yes. For me, with my synesthesia, I don't normally see colors. Everything's grayscale for me, but I see the different timbres of the instruments as shapes right all around me. And so just seeing that, hearing that stuff, and then feeling the touch as well, it was just truly in a world where there was nothing else. It was truly transportive and a, as a way to escape myself and a, to escape the lockdowns. That's fantastic. Well, yes, what a good way. Because it was interesting because um, last year there was a film that came out on the on the band Rima Rima. I don't know if you came across Rima Rima in 1979, starring people like um, Marco Peroni and um, oh. Dorothy Max Pryor and various people who were on in on 4AD uh, bands. Um, I think Wolfgang Press and also Gary. But, but, but in 79. Yeah, 79, Rima Rima came, did that one okay. EP. Can you wow. remember Rima Rima? No, but I'll, I'll totally look that up. Well, I suppose what was quite interesting, and, and one of the members was Gary Asquith, who went into Renegade Soundwave. Marco, okay. Marco Peroni went into Adamant. Yeah. Various other people 
I don't know, went into sort of um, interest in 4AD bands. Basically, Rima Rima were the first band on 4AD. And there's a film, this guy, they only did one EP, lasted eight months, and he'd done a film about them because they also recorded some other bits, so they got a compilation out. But there was at the beginning of the film, they they had this guy who was talking, he, he makes perfumes. And what he does, when he listens to certain music, he'll it creates a sort of an idea of, of sort of perfume that he'll he'll make for it. So he's he's done a lot of kind of music of quite obscure and abstract bands, including one for Rima Rima as well. So do you have a similar relationship with your sense sensory overload? No, no, and especially not with scent. But I I'm I'm now on the, as well as leading the Canadian Synesthesia Association. I'm now on the board of the American Synesthesia Association. So I'm, I keep getting pulled into this synesthesia thing deeper and deeper. And um, one person I know in Montreal, she's a perfumier. She makes perfumes for a living and she sees scents. So when she's making a perfume, she's able to see what she's doing as she's mixing each portion of each ingredient. Yes. And how strong it is together. And she can't imagine what it's like to make perfumes without being able to see the scents. And then when I was uh, living in Oaxaca last year, when we last spoke, there was uh, one Belgian chef there and she had taste to sight, taste and scent to sight. And so I'd taken her with some friends to this place that made these great Mexican moles. And we wanted to bring a real chef there to see, is it really as good as we think? And it was. And she started licking her plate at the end. I could see her mind just calculating through. And I was asking, okay, what's going on there? And it turned out she was looking at all the scents and the tastes. And she was able to break it down. Okay, it's 3% animal fat, 2% breadcrumbs. And she was able to work through the recipe by licking the plate. Wow, that is amazing. Yes, well, there you go. And um, yeah, there's a, there's this one particular guy, I have to send you the website. I mean, it, you know, all the perfumes are these kind of quite interesting bands and uh, songs, certain songs from various bands. And um, it's just kind of amazing when I came across I'd never come across it before. That's why I was kind of interested when you started talking about it. So, uh, well, yeah, it's so much less research, the olfactory synesthesias. You know, the scientists, they're still so focused on what color is the letter A to you? Is it this shade of red or this shade of blue? Yet there's so much more that's going to be explored over the next couple of years. And lately now, at least they're now starting to do a lot of studies on music and synesthesia now that so many people are talking about it. Yes. And just going back 24 hours, you had a you had a gig, didn't you, in, in the, the, the 100 Club. So what yeah. were you what were you performing with this one? With this one, we were just doing a general all-around set, a little bit off each album. And then, because uh, we had one of Spaceman 3, uh, Pete Bain, Pete Baseman, their original bass player, opening for us uh, and telling stories from his upcoming memoir, Sick Notes. So we had him join us for an old Spaceman 3 tune at the end of it all, which was great. We did, we did the Spaceman covered uh, 13th Floor Elevator's Roller Coasters, one of their mm. real staples that are live sets. So we're like, yeah, we'll do Roller Coaster with them. And, Yes. And and um, did you have Phil Parfit come in the end? No. And I was so bummed about that. And Phil and I talked for a while trying to work out ways to get him over. He's living in France at the moment, it turns out. And the drag is, is he's really close to a little rural airport that has a direct flight to London City. But the flights weren't starting until next week for the season. 
So normally it would have been super cheap, super easy to bring him on over, but because it wasn't, it was just going to be so circuitous and so expensive. It just wasn't doable, unfortunately. Yes. So I just, love that Mental Home Recordings album he put out 2020, 2021. It was stunning. I just also remember the cover was absolutely beautiful as well. Yeah. I just remember thinking that was, um, it reminded me of a, a guy who did a book called Masquerade about you had to, he dug it, he found, um, he made a gold rabbit. Was it a rabbit? And he buried it. And then you went through this book and then you had clues of where it was buried and you had to go and find it. It was a very big thing in the 80s. I don't know if you can remember. I can't remember the author, but it was, it captured everyone's imagination. But um, it, it was sounds like something the KLF would do. It was a lovely, it was a lovely story. It was a bit sad because actually what happened in the end, the person who found it, it was a bit of a cheat because his 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 ex-wife had sort of realized when they'd gone for a picnic where he'd buried it. So when she when they broke up, she let on where it was buried. And and so the magic of that whole kind of story yeah. in that period was was a bit spoiled. But decades later he got to see the the actual gold rabbit that he had buried. And um it was quite emotional. So it was quite sweet actually. So what was it? So that was that story. So what was it like going back to the um, previous album of mostly covers of Velvet Goldmine Underground and um, and Lou Reed? Yeah, honestly, it was really great. And because we had to have it remastered for the vinyl, I'd said to our mastering engineer, hey, do you think we could repitch it to A432? Which, you know, I've since come to learn these the difference between A440, which is the common tone that musicians use, the common tuning, and A432, which is a much more sort of organic tuning that people swear by is superior. And so it turned out my mastering engineer, Peter Moore, is a huge advocate of A432, and he was thrilled to have the chance to pitch the record down to it. And hearing it back with that slight change, I was amazed at just how much difference the feeling is of it and how much superior things are at those frequencies so we did that and we made a few little tweaks to songs that bothered me over the years and then vinyl mastered and the pressing came out absolutely great and i was thrilled that because it was record store day and you know space age recognized the need to be competitive on it they went for a die cut sleeve which was completely my dream for it always and so getting it all large die cut sleeve pull out additional artwork inside it uh, truly came out great Yes. And one of my, my favorite bands, and I love the story, you know, Fleetwood Mac over and over that there's a track of theirs that appear on side two. What was the, why did you put that track on that compilation uh, collection? Well, it's weird for me. I've never personally been into Fleetwood Mac, but what it was, was uh, Abby Fry who started the Flowers of Hell with me, our violist originally. And, uh, and her partner, Neil Wilkinson from British Sea Power, they've been together for years and years now and um originally when i said we were working on this they're like okay we'll send you something and then you can add on to it and they sent me this burl live song that was just too weird it just didn't fit with the rest of the record and so i was like okay i like it but it's just not fitting as part of the album and then the next thing they sent a few weeks later was over and over, which I thought they'd done it beautifully. And I only added a few things onto it and changed the mix around a little bit, inverting where some things were in, where some things were out. Yes. 
Yeah. It does. It works beautifully. I mean, the whole, the atmosphere of it. So look, just quite briefly, because I know we've done a, you know, a bit of a chat before, but for those who haven't heard, just a little bit of a background of your kind of musical world would be kind of fascinating, you know, just um, how, how it all developed for you. Is that possible? Uh, it is. So how far back you want to go? That's always. The... <laughs> well, it's always it's always curious because I kind of can you know because my memory's a bit shot sometimes. Well, so yeah. just roughly, you know, the the early musical moment that things started to develop for you. That was that's always a kind of curious point, isn't it? That enter entry bit. You know, for me, you know, it was glam, but there was also other moments when I listened, heard Scylla Black doing "Step Inside Love" on her Scylla show. That kind of dramatic entrance and her sort of you know it was almost early grunge from 1965 probably or no 67 and it was written by you know Lennon and McCartney so what was your did you have some other kind of musical moment yeah, that kind I, of... And, and again the thing is in Canada it's not as much of a music culture as in Britain so people tend to find music a little later whereas in Britain early teens they get it Canada is more around 15 that people kind of find their musical bent and for me, I remember being 15 and I was listening to each radio station looking for stuff and nothing had really grabbed me. And then I, I was with some friends and one had a stolen computer cassette tape that he'd uh, copied Skinny Puppy onto. And just hearing Smothered Hope, I was like, yes, this, you know, <laughs> not Cutting Crew, not Madonna, not Bon Jovi, not you 2 Yes, Skinny Puppy, this is how I feel. I'm 15. And then, you know, I didn't end up deep in industrial music beyond that. I just, that just was my gateway to getting into punk. Right. And I heard, never mind the bollocks. It was just like, yeah. That was it. And did you, were your parents at all musical? Did they have any kind of moment with you? My dad, completely non-musical. And my mom, only into music from 55 to about 64. You know, from Elvis to the end of Phil Spector, really. Right. Was was she into crooners and, and women singers like Teresa Brewer and people like that and um a little bit into Anne Murray who's a Canadian crooner who John Lennon and everyone loved um and I met Anne Murray a few years ago and she's actually really shit cool <laughs> what I was expecting at all from her um but yeah not so much the crooners but truly into rock and roll but the white rock and roll you know right like the Pat Boone's the Ricky Nelson's Yes, there, there you go. So you kind of, the 80s for you, you were still very young at that point. Yeah, and I didn't like much 80s music at all. I mean, there were a few bands I got into, The Smiths, The Cure, New Order a little bit. But uh, for me, I was mainly listening to British 77 punk rock bands. Right. Going back into The Dolls, and then that got me into The Stooges and The Ramones and that stuff. That's really interesting. What and, was yeah, it? And then, of course, I formed a punk rock band with friends. And, and then I ended up playing more experimental music on the underground scene in Eastern Europe after I was when I, where I lived in my early 20s. Right. And, so you moved out of Canada, went to East, Eastern Europe. Yeah. Yeah. When I was 21, unintentionally, I was just traveling with a backpack and dropped into I worked for a record company in Canada, a major label BMG. And I dropped in their office in Prague just to get some CDs and hear what concerts I should go to in my couple of days in town. And they're like, this is great. You have worked for Western Record Company. Can you set up our marketing department? We are just opening this month. And, you know, I was three weeks out of university. I was like, sure. And what, you guys have Geffen Records too? Yes, okay, I can <laughs> totally do this, you know. Right, I, yes. Yeah. So you had that whole kind of world of 
the 90s. And was that a period in this country? Obviously, it was cocaine and champagne period. What was it like for you in Eastern Europe? Oh, it was total carnage. I mean, it was just the the pendulum had swung the other way from complete oppression to complete freedom. So you're living in a place that everyone's catching up on five decades of what's been going on in the world. Suddenly cars go twice as fast, foods taste twice as good, 10,000 times more choice of records to listen to, and just the freedom to work in whatever you want to work in, the freedom to leave the country. And booze cost absolutely nothing. Rent was absolutely nothing. So everyone was just hammered and having a great time till around 97, which is when westernization had fully crept in. And then suddenly everyone had mortgages and car payments. And suddenly all the artists had left the government and the government was now just businessmen and lawyers like every other country. But for the early to mid nineties, you know, Prague in particular, especially, you know, just a fantastic place to live where you've got a leader who's an absurdist playwright, who's a massive Velvet Underground fan and friends with Lou Reed. Yes, I look for in a leader. (laughs) This is this. Yes, absolutely. You know, we we love that. So, how did you sort of jump from being into marketing to thinking, right, I'm going to be in a band? Well, the thing was, I'd always played music, and I just always thought the music I'm playing has got nothing to do with the kind of music that labels sign or anything, and it still doesn't really. You know, we kind of got lucky with Space Age signing us just now. Yes. Um, You know, and so I'd always kind of separated what I'm doing musically from the sort of music I'm working with. And also when you're at a label and the artists are people like David Bowie, you don't regard yourself as an artist. No, 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 you go. Did you just kind of did things just develop very quickly for you? Did you sort of did you always seem to attract such interest in band members? Yeah, I would say definitely even back there in Prague playing on the underground scene, it all just kind of happened organically, quickly, easily. Yes. So what was your first band that you were in? You said it was a rockabilly band. Um, well, the very first band I was in was in my teens. I was in a the, the marching band of the Royal Canadian Air Cadets 666 Squadron, which Excellent. ended up getting renamed to 166 once people caught on with the connotations of 666. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was my first band and since there were 20 people in it it's never seemed unnatural to me leading a transatlantic space rock orchestra with so many members but then Prague it was shifting lineups of different bands and then in, in Russia and Moscow I was in a rockabilly band in Moscow and how did you find Russia at this stage of its kind of uh, political oh, in 97 it was awful it was just absolutely awful the country was completely on its knees and crumbling further down. There was no hope for the future. And the worst thing is Russians, they're like emo kids or Smith fans. They just love being depressed together. And it just drags the feeling of everything on down even lower. And in their culture, they've got a name for it, the Gruznaya Ruskaya Dusha, the sad Russian soul. And they're very proud of how sad they are. Right. Life is truly miserable. It just makes it even worse. And 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 it was violent times and, you know, brutal times and just mass poverty as well. Yes. And so I was happy that I was out of Russia after just six months. And and, and dealing with business, how was how was negotiating in, in such places? I mean, what was that like for a young person? Well, everybody needed a bodyguard. Well, at least mafia protection. And so every company had to pay for some protection. And even if it was just a granny selling socks in front of a metro station, she'd be paying someone 
for protection racket, you know, just be able to stand there selling the socks. So for BMG, we managed to expense it through as our security person who just somehow was never in the office. And we found a security company that uh, they did defense, but they did no offense. So we felt ethical in giving them money because they'd stop people from breaking our legs, but they weren't going out and breaking legs for us or for other people. Yes. And in that period in, in Russia, what what did you manage to do and achieve in that period for um, the record label? I managed to tell our label, get the hell out. Don't go <laughs> full on in. And we ended up being the only major label that did lose millions of dollars in Russia. We just kept three trustworthy Russians on staff <coughs> to import CDs. Right. Yes. And then that was it. Everyone else got tied in with a Russian label. The Russian labels are all mafia. And of course, they just screwed over their Western business partners. Blimey. Cases. And, so then, but so, it was brutal. Like, like we'd be going to meetings and we'd have to bring bodyguards with us because that's part of the show. The, you know, the bodyguards are only getting paid five bucks an hour. So they're not going to take a bullet for me for that. And, you know, you meet <laughs> these Russian labels at these fancy Russian restaurants and everyone would leave their bodyguards at the door. And, you know, you'd be coming up from having the meal and you see your bodyguards hanging out with their bodyguards going, so how much are you making? How much are you making? And then they see you, they pretend like, yeah, yeah, we're we're just getting ready to mess them up, man. <laughs> <laughs> My God, I remember we all watched Gorky Park in, in the 80s, didn't we, with William Hurt, but um, I don't, that was such a long time ago, I can't remember the narrative. But it must have been, yes, it must have been an eye-opening experience. And oh, during... yeah, no, it was brutal. It was definitely brutal when it... When I went back to Moscow in 2019, that's when it sunk in just how much I'd gone through as a young person six months being there. I was like, why the hell did these old Germans send a young kid in there? It was because they were too scared to go there themselves. They'd gone once, some of them, the highest ups in BMG, and they were just too scared to go back. So somehow they 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 caught me to do it. You know, at first I said no, because I knew of a Warner guy who got killed the year before I went out there. And they're like, yeah, Greg, but that's why you love it. Look, go for a week. And if you don't like it, you don't have to stay. So I went for a week. And it was like living in Pulp Fiction, just all this insane violence, but a humor to it. So I uh, I ended up staying. I mean, I remember there was one guy in that week where they sent me out there just to check it out. We were in, you know, we had job opening with our little representation office of the major in Moscow. And there was some mafia guy who had applied and everyone knew who he was, which mafia was tied to. I'm like, well, why are you giving him an interview? He's like, we have to. Otherwise, it would be bad relations if we don't bring him in to talk to him. Like, All right, fair enough. And then he comes on in and just complete, complete gangster, you know, and 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 I didn't know the full background. All. And suddenly one of the BMG guys on our side in the interview goes, so tell us, what is this about that was in the press in the West about you issuing death threats to Sony executives in London. And he's like, oh, I'll tell you about that. I am at home. I'm about to make love to my ex-wife. I'm drinking my vodka. This asshole from Sony England, he calls me up and tells me I'm a bad person, that I'm pirating his stuff as well as having license for it. So I go to England. I try to smooth things over. They won't hear anything. So when I got back to Moscow, I sent them facts. It said, if either of you ever come to Moscow, you need only buy a one-way ticket. Then the press got a hold of it. It all got out of proportion. <laughs> 
That's amazing. Yes, you must have been happy to relieve that that little moment in life. Well, yeah, and that guy, that guy himself. The next time we met him, a week later, just all these bruises on his hands, and then a month after that, disappeared. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was that kind of place. But as a Westerner, you had immunity. You knew they'd run you to the airport rather than killing you. Right. When I landed and started living in Moscow, that was the way. But then there was an American hotelier who got gunned down in the metro station. And when the U.S. government did nothing, suddenly every foreigner was, what? You mean our government is going to do anything if the mafia kill us? And all the mafia were like, what, we can kill foreigners and the embassies don't do anything? Hmm. And then it became a bit like, oh. Suddenly, it's open season on foreigners. Yes, God, that's extraordinary. So then, sort of, as as we navigated the Millennium Bug in two thousand, this is where you then form a Flowers of Hell, isn't it? Yes, in London, and around two thousand five. And what was the kind of thinking behind that at the time? Well, originally it was just to be a one-off because it, it seems so hard to fathom now. But London in two thousand five. It was really just Britpop type indie nights everywhere. And you couldn't play experimental music, any even post-rock shoegaze. It was haram. It was just stuff that promoters would not book and that they thought audiences wouldn't want. And so it really was only these two nights in London, Club AC30 and Sonic Cathedral started up 2004, 2005. And my friends from Prague, the Ecstasy of St. Teresa, one of the original shoegaze bands from the early 90s, they were over. I met the AC30 guys. I mentioned that uh, I was doing some stuff with Sonic Boom and they were like, oh, do you want to come here and play? You know, I'm like, okay, because I had a track that I wanted to do live and then I just recruited a band around me. It was to be a one-off show, but load it went great. And then loading out, we're all like, yeah, we should do more of this. And I'm still playing with the same people last night, some of them. Blimey, that is an amazing story. And does, I mean, you know, without, you know, being too obvious, but does, how, how, how important are the kind of the, you know, drugs to the band and the sound? Um, it really depends on the record and on the song. And it's the kind of stuff, uh, as a band, whenever we're rehearsing, whenever we're performing, we're absolutely stone sober. We're not even drunk if we're rehearsing or, or, or performing. But for songwriting, I find that, you know, just smoking a joint completely frees things up. And for mixing a record, I also find that doing the technical side of the mix, Stone Sober, but to listen back to the mix and look at the synesthetic sites and see how it's all flowing and to feel what's not quite right, then having a joint for doing that side of things, great. Yes. And, that's um, and then, you know, it's also... Having listened to music on psychedelics now and then over the years, you really start to learn what really takes you to the other side. And so there's a lot of that programmed in. And often the same things they'll give me the best psych- uh, the best synesthetic sites are the same things that on psychedelics will take a person that bit further over to the other side. Yes. So that has us program in a lot of those things. And it's amazing with the Kashaktram. I just received last week uh, Sonic Boom, Pete Kember from Spaceman 3. He's done a reworking of the tracks, and uh, it's a 10-minute version he's done. And it was great because it arrived with me while I was staying in a yurt in the Gobi Desert last week. And it was the perfect place. I downloaded it through the mobile signal, and I was able to walk through the Gobi Desert listening to it. 
And my only instructions to Sonic, you know, the guy who'd come up with the term taking drugs to make music to take drugs to, was <laughs> that, you know, no beats and I want it to be something great to trip to. And wow, just the sounds he knew to work on into it and the ways to work them and the effects to put on them. I was like, okay, yeah, he's truly been on the other side, listening to music on and off for a long time with a level of perfection and understanding of what truly resonates. And then when you're not on any psychedelics, the same things just naturally stimulate the mind in a huge way. Yes. So psychedelics are kind of a shortcut to creating the stuff and then you create it and whether you're on them or off them you get somewhere else and so that walk through the Gobi Desert you know I was completely sober it's the Gobi Desert but I truly felt like I was tripping listening to Sonic's mix because it was that transportive yeah amazing I mean did you when you started the band did you have any sort of major plan or was it just kind of one album to the next album really just one to the next no major plan though We'd had the goal from day one, uh, my main bandmate, Steve Head, whose place I'm staying at tonight. Um, you know, we both really wanted to veer into classical and see what happens. Can you combine laser guided melodies and classical music? And so our first records sound more like early Velvet Underground with shades of classical in it. And then by the fifth record, we got to doing a symphony with shades of psychedelic music in it. Was that come hell or high water? Uh, no, first record self-titled, and then the fifth one's Symphony Number no. One. Right. Yes. So, what classical pieces are you particularly influenced by, or composers? Well, definitely Ennio Morricone, and I saw him at the Barbican in London in two thousand two, and it was just one of those shows you see, and it just influences you. And that's why we've had an opera soprano in the band the last couple of years, is because. Seeing an opera soprano singing at Morricone's best of performance with the Rome Philharmonic, I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah, one soprano with a full orchestra. There's so much that can be done with that. Um, and then really just the best of classical music. I like classical when it's fully melodic. I hate 20th century atonal classical music or where classical veers into the ideas of things as opposed to being all about big sweeping melodies. So it's very much you know, late 1800s, romantic era classical, the Wagner, the late Beethoven stuff is uh, more what yes. I'm in. I, I, do, I do remember now, probably about 10 years ago, there was a fantastic series. They were, I think they were like five or 10 minute pieces. Howard Goodall, the 50, 50 most important pieces of classical or most important music from the very beginning. And, and you know, the reason he picked each one was that it meant that the, it was a kind of a, a shift from one period to the next. And it was just, it was kind of one of the most fascinating kind of listen, you know, it was like such an educational experience from and the very... And to me, I think classical really peaked, you know, 1827 to around 1910, you know, and it's some things like jazz, like jazz to me peaked in the 60s, you know, there's not much beyond the early 70s in jazz I'd listen to, or even reggae, you know, I'm like 66 to 74, beyond that, you know... That's a couple. I, I was. I I did get into the eighties reggae. I loved the Sly and Robbie period and and Gregory Isaacs. So yeah. Dennis Brown. So things. But Augustus Pablo was probably more your mid seventies, wasn't he? So um, yeah, I think that's even seventy two rockers uptown or whatever. Right. Yes. No, that was a classic. And did you? And did you? Were you able with keeping the band? Because it's kind of a complex band. How do you sort of balance that and your kind of life? 
you know, general sort of nomadic well, lifestyle. We've never been a heavy touring band. And our records wouldn't sound the same if we had been on the road, you know? And so our records, they've all taken, you know, years of working and chipping away at things to build up the sounds we want. Whereas if we were a touring band as our main thing, we'd be writing stuff that'd be fun to play on stage or, as opposed to thinking, okay, what's going to sound most amazing on an album? And so not being a heavy touring band's always made things that more doable. Early on, we decided we didn't want to earn a living from our music. And although we could see we were on a path where we could go that way, we all agreed it's just too much of a limiting life to just sit around in a band. Yes. There's a, there's the Wedding Present, who we did some shows with last year in Prague and Berlin, they... Uh, David Gedge from The Wedding Present has been serializing his life in these graphic novels, and which I love. I mean, so I've read so many artist autobiographies that to see it done in a new way, it's amazing. And there's a great bit in one of them where, you know, there was a Wedding Present drummer who was in the band for four years, right? And, you know, some interviewer apparently had been asking him, can you describe your four years in The Wedding Present? His answer was just, it was four years in a van. And then they're like, well, how come you left the band? I had to get out of the van. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. Completely what we could. We'd all worked with artists before the, for years. And so we could see what the life was. And we're like, yeah, we don't want that limitation of just going town to town to town to town again and again. Yeah. You know, like the same songs night after night after night after night. We don't need the ego of the hand clap and the cheer and the merch sale and, you know. Yes. Yeah, it's, I think it's a sad thing that the system has caused so many of the most creative musical people to spend their lives in bands. It's a kind of a rite of passage, isn't it, really? I know there was a really good film, talking of another film. There was, George, you know, the George Best film by the wedding, you know, of the wedding yeah. present. I don't know yeah, if you've seen great. it. Yeah, and and the, and this kind of the and the drummer. There's a, so much about recording is about the drummer, isn't it? Because it's often the drummer and engineer producer who who have this kind of interesting relationship. So I've I've met quite a few broken drummers from from that experience where, you know, they get they get almost to mentally tortured in the studio. So um, it was it's quite an interesting one that um, yes, I being an indie kid, I quite like that kind of messy sound, but I didn't realize that. The, the wedding present had such kind of issues to do with uh, the drummer who got, you know, sidelined. And um, yes. Yeah, Sean, the original drummer. I got to meet him. We played the uh, Edge of the Sea Festival back in 2019 and he was down at it. Yes. So what was it like, just jumping them forward, what was it like sort of, and, and why did you do that tour with uh, the wedding present? Oh, it was just, I mean, Sea Monsters has long been one of my favorite albums. And they were actually touring Sea Monsters. And so I'd been so busy all year and in a big rush. You know, I was living with no fixed address for a while, then home in Toronto for a few months. And then suddenly so busy, landed in Prague. And I told myself that, yeah, the second I get into the flat I've rented in Prague, I'm just going to lie down, sleep. I was so wound up that I just had this extra bit of energy going on. I'm like, okay. The one thing I didn't do that I told myself I was going to do the last couple of months was message David Gedge and see if they've got an opening act here in Prague next month. Four weeks away, I'm sure they do, but I'll just do it while I'm still all wired on up. And I messaged him and he wrote back, Greg, that'd be great. We don't have anyone opening for us. I'm like, and how about Berlin? He's like, yep, we don't have anyone opening in Berlin either. So at four weeks notice, we were able to become their uh, 
their opening act on those two days. So are you able to pull in, you know, your musicians at that short notice and say, right, we've got a gig, we've got this set list, let's go? Well, the nice thing is, is the Flowers of Hell, we've always only done one rehearsal and then a shower, one rehearsal, studio session. So that's always been our way of working. But with this one, it ended up being tougher because many of the UK band initially thought they could come over and then they weren't able to. But because I'd played on the prog scene in the 90s, I know so many great musicians there, people I used to play with when I was 21, that I was able to augment the lineup with from the UK with Czechs. Yes. And that worked really great because uh, one of the Czechs, you know, one of my big influences is the Czech Velvet Underground Revival Band, more so than the real Velvet Underground, because I listened to the real Velvet's records when I was 21, got them a bit, but I wasn't, you know, hugely devoted. And then I went to see this band of dissidents playing Velvet Underground songs, and they used to play them under communism clandestinely, where they'd risk never getting into university, never getting a decent flat, never getting a decent job, never getting a car for playing this kind of forbidden music. And so it means so much to them. And they played the Velvet Underground brilliantly, so much so that Lou Reed actually saw them and uh, twice did shows with them because he was like, you actually do some of this better than we ever did in the Velvet Underground. <laughs> and none of it's note for note. It's all completely just loose and in the style of. And so I, I, knowing I was thinking of doing a Flowers of Hell show in Prague, I tried to track down their violin player. It turned out they had a new one a younger guy, Alois, who's, uh, I guess, about 27. And so we'd gone for a beer. We just totally got on. Turned out he has synesthesia as well in that. And then a few weeks before we were to play in Prague together, he called me up. He's like, Greg, Velvet Underground Revival Band is playing festival tomorrow night. I'm like, great, I'll be there. Like, I love them. This is like one of my all-time biggest influences. I can't believe I'm getting the chance to see them. They only play three or four times a year. and you know, he's, no, no, I'm calling you because lead guitarist has COVID and we must cancel festival appearance unless we can find someone who can play Velvet Underground lead guitar. Can you do it? <laughs> I'm like, this is the call I've been waiting for all my life. <laughs> you know, and the thing was, though, I was like, okay, well, send me the set list. How, how long is the set? He's like, was well, it two and a half hour set with 24 songs? I'm like, all right, I'll still do it. Just send it on. And so in 24 hours, I just crammed 24 Velvet Underground lead guitar parts and then was on stage with these old Czech distance, some of whom had done jail time for playing these songs under communism. And, you know, playing, waiting for the man, looking across the stage at an old distant who's been playing it since 1970 who served six months in prison for this music in 76 it was really just yeah one of my favorite gigs i've ever done god that's amazing and did you and and is it the case that it's not like oh my god i've got to get it perfect it's going to be just the get get the vibe get the well completely and and in fact you know about an hour before we went on stage the lead guitarist with the covid called and he couldn't speak any english but he was talking to the violin player he was to Tell him, remember, the more wrong it is, the more it will sound like the real Velvet Underground. (laughs) (laughs) So it's completely, you know, zero pressure and completely just about having the feel of it as opposed to having all the notes. right. Yes, I I did sort of have a moment at Glastonbury Festival where I saw the, you know, the reformed Velvet. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that was just terrible. I mean, I'm happy that Mo and Sterling got a payout from the thing, but it shouldn't have happened. And honestly, that's one of the reasons there'll never be a Spaceman 3 reunion, is uh, Pete and Jason had seen there, like, yeah, no, never. Way cooler never to reform than reform and be lesser than what people thought you were. Yes, because I, you know, in the 80s was a massive Smiths fan and I could never understand why people, because that moment had gone, you know, that that kind of, you can't have that moment again. You can have variations, but you can't have that thing that happened decades ago, you know, click, you know, it just isn't. I mean, I'm a huge Pistols fan, but seeing the Pistols reformed in 96, I couldn't not go, but it was just such a letdown. And John Lydon singing all the sign, songs, but with his pill high-pitched voice, you know, it's like yes no it's not it's not a pretty sight really it's it's a bit of a weird one you know when you came to do come hell or high water this you know the band has really expanded at this stage isn't it and it's a much more it's is it you know a much more ambitious album and you have some amazing guest stars on it so what was it kind of like as you were building this project up well the thing is is with the first album it came out first in November 2006 and completely flopped. It got one review. We played an album launch show at Notting Hill Arts Club with Sonic Boom DJing. And, but record completely flopped. But the publicist, he was like, you know what, Greg? I believe it's a truly good record. So I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to send it out again in the first two weeks of January and just write a new release date on the press release. And then we end up with reviews in every single British newspaper and music magazine. And so that was a huge learning curve of how much the press can truly influence whether a band exists or not. Because basically, when nothing happened when it came out in the November, we basically split on up. But then mm. suddenly in every paper, it's like, oh, yeah, actually, yay, we are actually all right here. <laughs> and so then I knew people were listening in that. That's where I knew, okay, now the second album, I can really really work on this and make it something special and so i really worked hard on that one with like 50 sessions around the world with so many different people playing and just getting into whole orchestral bits of things and how do you how did you manage to sort of keep the concept from you know together and and sort of into a held space and it not just fizzing out and never finishing i think with come hell in particular Pretty early on, there was a draft of a flow to it. And so it was more just finishing the tracks. The tracks were around and had been started. And then it was more, and there were extra ones. And it was more just taking them all to a point and seeing which of the, which of the 15 or so tracks got to being a level that I'd be happy with, could measure and go beyond what we'd done on the first album. Yes, that's, that's quite important. And how did you sort of keep the... You know, how do you pay for these such ambitious projects? To be honest, with Come Hell, everyone worked on it for free. You know, and, and it's also what helps is that we're a band that's never made a dime. Every single thing we've done has lost money. And so it's really <laughs> just been my day job financing the band. And, uh, and somehow the government lets us go on losing money, which is a good thing. And given, you know, what's written about musicians, the government's doing the right thing there. Yes. I keep hoping that someday these copyrights will be worth something. But obviously, if we wanted to make money, we wouldn't have formed a pat. <laughs> this is true. So what was it, you know, once that project was over, you came out with O. What was the kind of the direction for this next release? 
with oh it was that we'd been booked to uh play an experimental arts night in toronto uh, just before we were going on a cross canada tour to support the come hell or high water album and so i was thinking back to spaceman 3's dream weapon album where they were booked to play an arts center and they just did a 42 minute piece and so i was like all right we're booked to play an arts night we'll do a 42 minute piece and I just came up with a bit of a structure and then we just kind of loosely followed the structure and improvised for the 42 minutes and it worked out great. And then we got back from the two week tour where we've been playing completely different stuff on tour and we're just tour tight, you know, after sharing beds and toilets and meals for two weeks going 9,000 kilometers. And so I was, okay, yeah, now's the time to go in the studio while we all are this tight. And the only thing we had written loosely was oh so we went into the studio and we agreed we'll do it all in one take and coming from the velvet sister ray approach and did it all in one take but then i spent a long time mixing it yes and and does a lot of it really all come sort of channeled through your kind of being you know your spirit is it is it input you know is it kind of the essence of you that that comes through I think with some of the records is everybody in the group spirits and then with others like the symphony is mine and and it's the weirdest thing I was saying to my my opera soprano who really worked the closest with me on that symphony and again I was saying in the last 14 months where she was one of the only people I was having human contact with when she'd come around once a week and somehow she sang my soul and we still both don't understand how she did it but she did it. And so I don't really quite know how it works, but somehow it happens. Do you find that you you sort of have to be at a certain emotional state, kind of vibrating? Oh, definitely, definitely. Because is it kind of your passion that people kind of feed from? I think I think that's part of it for sure. And then that... it's also it's also just attracting people around who are just on the same wavelength. Because Someone the other night was saying how everyone in the band's really nice, and they are. And it's just a lot of really empathetic people. And, and we've noticed when we go on tour, it really is quite a band bubble beyond other bands we've been in, where you just psychologically feel very unified as a whole when we're traveling together. Yes, I would have. Yeah, because I get that vibe that it must be a lot of fun to work with you. Whereas a lot of bands, you know, there is a sort of bit of a job thing, like you said, the van, the studio, writing that material. It sometimes feels a bit like hard work for those people. And then keeping this gig going to the next gig and then the next, uh, you know, the next year and then paying that off and then the next year and paying that off. Well, yeah. Whereas you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't you... live off it. You know, the second you remove money from it all, I think it becomes a lot easier. Yes, I could imagine. So where where are you sort of planning to sort of maneuver yourself next? Again, there's never really been a, a roadmap. It's just whatever feels right will happen. You know, and and I always think we're at the end and then suddenly something else happens on up. Like, you know, I mean, two weeks before I got the record deal offer from Space Age, I decided I'd had enough and that, yeah. No, just I just can't be bothered doing the business bullshit side and the algorithms and working the socials and all that. Just have a life. And then they were like, hey, do you want to put something out in Space Age? I'm like, okay, I guess I'm back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I don't, you know, it's interesting. I've done an interview with Pete and also Will as well. 
Carruthers and you know amazing characters you know which you must enjoy having that kind of sort of being in the same space as them well yeah yeah no especially those two I mean they truly are characters yes I could imagine so if you could have said something to your like 16 year old self sort of starting out is there anything in particular you would have said oh that's a good thing to have headed for or gone towards I, I would have told myself that you have talent and pursue the music because I spent so much of my 20s and early 30s helping other artists working at record companies on top of the pops. That's, uh, yeah, yes. rather than pursuing my own. So no, so you've got no more live dates lined up? No, no. And it's sad. We were meant to actually do a May tour of America. That was to be our first U.S. tour. We were finally going to pay the ridiculous $3,000 in visa these and do it and then we had an agent that just didn't submit the paperwork on time so oh my god that's yeah. so depressing and then it was too tight a window to do a uk tour but i'm like okay but i can sort out a london show and so hence things yes. back to just that but it ended up being for the best because i ended up spending may driving around the gobi desert in a van instead so i'm like if i'm gonna lose money or spending a week in a van why not do it in the gobi desert instead of on an interstate highway Yes, absolutely. Well, look, this has been, thank you ever so much again for giving me the time for this, Greg. This oh, has been a... thank you so much. Honestly, I love talking to you. So, <laughs> yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to uh, Greg Jarvis, as always, um, talking about his life in music and art. And um, as I said, I'll give you the link in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You will find me. You will indeed. And all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean. Check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>